Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Today we have a very special podcast for the Library of Mistakes, and it's to celebrate the opening of a new Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh. We have moved to bigger premises. Yes, mistakes keep growing. To celebrate the opening of the library, we it was opened by Lord Darling, formerly Alistair Darling, uh, who was a member of the British government from 1998 to 2010, but of course most famously was Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, during our great financial crisis. In, in his talk and then later discussions with Ray Perman, uh, Lord Darling discusses the momentous decisions that were made in those days and how quickly those decisions had to be made and the ramifications from those decisions. Uh, was, um, I think the idea of a library of mistakes and getting people to accept that we all make mistakes, whether it's individuals, whether it's institutions or governments for that matter, we make mistakes. And the thing is to learn from them. If you make a mistake, why did you make a mistake? What went wrong? What could you have done better? If you're taking a risk, for example, it's important in uh, financial services, do you understand the risks that you're taking on? Uh, you know, during the height of the financial crisis in 2008, I remember one night uh, we had a meeting in the Treasury with the uh, chief executives and the chairman, and there were men in those days, uh, came to, to discuss what we might do to uh, deal with the growing crisis. I was taken aside by the chief executive and chairman of one bank, and they said, look, I know you're worried about, about us, but I just want to uh, reassure you and offer you some reassurance. And I said, that'd be great, because it was in short supply just at that time. And they said, well, we had a meeting last night, and we've agreed from now on we will only take on risks that we understand. <laughs> <laughs> it may surprise you to know that that bank does not exist anymore. Uh, but, you know, I, I make the point because... You know, especially during that financial crisis, uh, you know, mistakes were made all over the place, some of them catastrophic, and they weren't all made in London or New York. Some of them were made in this city with, I'm afraid, catastrophic and probably very long-lasting consequences for this city. So I think it is a thoroughly good thing uh, that uh, this library is being established. We want people to be entrepreneurial, to do the best they possibly can, but just be aware of the fact you know, mistakes can be made and say, well, this, this, you know, individuals or government, they can be made and, you know, we need to learn from them. Anyway, that's really all I wanted to say about that. I just wanted to say, though, in the context of uh, this library, um, uh, Russell mentioned um, Ray's excellent book, The City of Money, which came out just before the COVID crisis uh, struck. But there is a really good example of how uh, Ray has written a book describing the good things that happened the mistakes were made. And it's a very good companion piece to his book, uh, Hubris, which is about uh, the rise and then decline of the Bank of Scotland and then HBOS. I hope you don't mind me giving you a plug. Uh, by the way, that is, that is my book there. Uh, in, in that alcove. The last time I was here about two months ago, it was tucked away at the bottom, but I see someone's had the decency, at least for tonight, to stick it uh, next to Hank Paulson's uh, book. Uh, which I hadn't realised was called On the Brink. Mine was called Back from the Brink. Um, uh, so you can see that as well. Anyway, having said that, 
Um, it gives me great pleasure to declare this library open. I think it is a very good thing for Edinburgh. It's a very good thing for students of the future. You can learn from the mistakes of the, of the generations that came before. So good luck. I hope it succeeds. Thank you. Thank you. That, it's my job to introduce Alistair, but um, as Russell has said and as Alistair has said, the whole ethos of the library mistakes is that people should learn from their mistakes or the mistakes of the past. But just a plea for journalists like myself and Ian Fraser there, please don't learn too quickly because uh, mistakes are our stock in trade and we, we need to keep a regular income coming in. Um, Gordon Brown, who was uh, Alistair's boss at one time, once said of Chancellor of the Exchequer that there are only two types of Chancellors of the Exchequer. There are those whose careers end in failure and those who get out in time. And clearly he thought of himself as one who got out in time. We can speculate on where Richie Sunak will end up on that spectrum. But Alistair really sort of proved the exception to that rule. He clearly didn't get out in time because he became Chancellor in June 27, 2007, just as the biggest financial crisis for 60 years was about to hit the UK uh, and Europe and America. Um, but he clearly didn't also finish as a failure because three years later, when he left office in 2010 after the Labour Party lost control in the election there. And not only had a big banking crisis been averted, but the deficit was coming down, the markets were going up, uh, and things were set fair for the, Scottish, uh, for the British economy. So from that point of view, we're very privileged to have um, one of the few chancellors who didn't get out in time and didn't end as a failure to speak to us tonight. I just want to run through very briefly the events of 2007-8 leading up to the crisis which Alistair was deeply involved in, just to refresh your memory. As I say, he became Chancellor in 2007. He'd actually been in the Treasury 10 years before as Chief Secretary, and in between had done a number of Cabinet-level uh, posts, including being Secretary of State for Transport and Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, but came back to... Uh, the Treasury as Chancellor in June 2007, and already then the effects of the American subprime uh, disaster were beginning to be felt in Europe. And, and in August that year, BNP Paribas had to freeze two funds which were invested heavily in subprimes. Rumours were already through the summer circulating about Northern Rock, a uh, ex-building society which had expanded very aggressively by making you know, very aggressive loans using borrowed money uh, and they were finding it terrifically difficult to finance their balance sheet through that period and then of course in September uh, those rumours really reached ground level and we had the, the vision of people queuing up outside bank branches to withdraw their money. The first physical run on a bank in Britain for, well, at least for 60 years, if not more. Um, Alistair was to be deeply involved with, with Northern Rock from then on. But in the following year, in March, we had uh, Bear Stearns collapsing. 
um, in the United States. In the summer, two big British banks, RBS and HBOS, both of whom had in the spring released quite encouraging financial figures, both went to the market to boost their capital, to go for rights issues. They saw it as a way to boost confidence, but the market saw it in the opposite direction, that they were in trouble. Uh, and the market reacted as markets do. In the uh, HBOS, for example, 90% of the underwriting of the new shares was left with the underwriters. The market did not take it. Um, there was a clear vote of no confidence in one of the biggest banks in Britain. In September, in New York, um, the two um, mortgage wholesale lenders, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, both had to be effectively nationalized, although George Bush couldn't bring himself to use that word and called it conservatorship. Uh, then, of course, Lehman Brothers went bust. The big blow, both in the United States and in London, we saw all those television pictures of people coming out of the building with all their possessions in a cardboard box. You know, it was really getting very serious at that time. Ireland then made the foolish decision to uh, guarantee all bank deposits made by the Taoiseach without any consul uh, consultation with Parliament, uh, with very few of his ministers, and that decision almost bankrupted the Irish Republic. Then we had in October, Iceland's three biggest banks going bust. Iceland? I mean, how on earth did Iceland have banks active in the international money markets that could collapse and, and wreck the country? But they did. The RBS share price was already in trouble at that time. And then HBOS was rescued by Lloyds, but that was a temporary uh, reprieve because it became pretty obvious pretty soon afterwards that Lloyds itself was going to need to be rescued as a result of taking on the liabilities in HBOS, which they didn't understand and couldn't quantify. And then in October, this is where I want to really turn it on to Alistair, on October the 7th, in fact, before dawn, Alistair took off from an airport near London to go to a finance minister's meeting of the European Union in Luxembourg. But no sooner had he got there than he was called out of the meeting to take a phone call from Sir Tom McKillop, chairman of Royal Bank of Scotland. Sir Tom, of course, had built a reputation as the chief executive of AstraZeneca, a solid, reliable man, a scientist, no nonsense, rational, and I'm sure he was calm and collected when he called you, Alistair, and probably he was calling to ask you to bring some duty-free back from Luxembourg. But actually, what was the conversation you had with him on that morning? I'm not sure that Carmen collected was how I would describe <laughs> the situation. Just, just before I get to that, yeah. I mean, you've, you've done a good timeline of, of what was happening. And you know, all through the summer of um, uh, 2008, it was obvious to us and the Treasury and the Bank of England that, that things were deteriorating. Uh, you'd seen the signals of the Met and so on. 
but um, uh, you know, we, we, it, it, it was really clear to us uh, by September that most British, well, the majority of British banks needed more capital, <clears throat> and if they couldn't raise it, we were going to have to provide it. And you know, that the night before um, the uh, I went to Luxembourg, um, I had a meeting with um, the. You know, I said earlier, yet another meeting with the, the, the major um, banks, uh, chief executives and, uh, and uh, CEOs. And I did not tell them everything that we were about to announce uh, because having been around long enough, uh, you know, it, I didn't want everything to get into the newspapers prematurely till it was all completed and ready to go. You may recall the Americans didn't do that with a TARP rescue scheme and it, you know, it went to pieces because it could be picked apart. So the last thing I said to th these people was, when, as they were leaving, I said, when you leave here, make sure that you don't say a word to anyone and anyone, because if this gets out, there will be a run on banks. Anyway, it took approximately half an hour before the Admiral Robert Peston was on the phone with quite uh, an accurate, though not complete, account of what had taken place because somebody had told him, and you know what it's like, a journalist like him does his job, he phones around and says, is it you? And of course, if it's not you, despite what I said, they say no, and sooner or later you get to um, the person that does not return your call. And, of course, what happened was I'd gone off to Luxembourg for um, ECOFIN meetings. And the one good thing about Brexit is ministers don't have to go to these meetings anymore. Uh, but when I got there, uh, my private secretary said to me that there's been a massive run on RBS shares. They're hemorrhaging money. Now, at that time, RBS was probably the biggest bank in the world. And if you wanted to understand how big it was, it was as big as the UK's economy. It was very, very big. So it was that the context that when uh, Tom McKillop um, asked to speak to me, and of course I had to leave this meeting of you know, few European finance ministers, all of whom assiduously read British newspapers and listen to the BBC and looked at me with more than a touch of schadenfreude, I thought, uh, as I went to take this call. And, you know, it's probably one of the scariest calls I've taken in my life. <clears throat> and when I, I asked Tom what it was, he said, look, we're hemorrhaging money and we're going to run out of money. And I said, how long have you got? And he said, about three hours. Now, when you think about it, <clears throat> if RBS had run out of money, its doors would have shut, the cash line machines would have gone off. And remember that time, people were heavily dependent on cash. And what's more is people would realize, if I can't get my money out of the biggest bank in the world, what about every other bank? They would have had exactly the same problem, and you would have a... And people don't, didn't always appreciate this. Banks actually carry very little cash. And if you turn up, everybody turns up asking for their money back, they simply can't do it, as we found in Northern Rock. So the, the problem was, if we did not do something about um, um, RBS, you would have a complete collapse, certainly the UK financial system. My, my guess is, with the US and most of Europe, probably Japan at the same time, it would have been a calamitous... And think about it, if people can't get money and they can't feed their children and they can't get petrol, you would have real serious social problems if that had happened. Now, happily, we did have a plan uh, that was due to be announced, so it just had to be brought forward. But <clears throat> basically, as you know, what we did was we acquired um, you know, more than half the shares in um, RBS. We had to do the same for HBOS. Barclays said they could raise money elsewhere. But all the, you know, the other banks came in behind it. But if we had not done that, um, 
then the banking system would have collapsed and the economy would not have been recovering, as you kindly said, three years later. Well, before you get to that, so Tom McKillop tells you that they've got three hours left. How did you stop that bank going bust? Well, quite simply, because the first thing that we did uh, was to phone up the Americans, because it was, you know, it was going to be the afternoon before this became obvious, and told the US Fed, you keep this bank going until the end of your trading day. We do not want it collapsing. Because uh, the earliest I could make an announcement, because you can't make an announcement like this during the, trade, the trading day, even though the world is threatened is coming to an end, you've got to watch the stock exchange rules. And so it would, it would have been the Wednesday morning before I could, 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 make, uh, could make the announcement. Um, so basically the US Fed, it's interesting, I, I met some years later the guy who took the call from the guy in the Bank of England, and at no point did he ask, um, okay, I'll do that, but who's going to pay for all this? Because the trust between us and the Americans at that stage was such they didn't. They said, okay, we'll do it. Now, you imagine if it had been a few years later with Trump, there's no way that we would have done that. And, but you, we had to keep this bank going during the trading day to stop it absolutely collapsing. And then overnight, you know, we, we, the plans were largely ready to go. I, um, you have to issue a formal market notice at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I had to do the media round. It is critical when you're in a crisis that you keep control of the situation you must be there at the start announcing whatever you've got to announce and being able to explain it. Um, and so that, that is basically, it was done overnight, and if it hadn't, you know, I couldn't, couldn't guarantee that it, whether it worked or not, it did actually work. So, so let, let's take this one. So you prevented Royal Bank from going bust, at least for the day, and then in the evening you had to get the bank chairs and chief executives to agree to the package which you put together? Well, it was an odd sort of agreement, because I said, this is what we're going to do. And if you don't like it, what are you going to say to your shareholders tomorrow morning? Because you know, one of them did actually say, suppose we don't accept this. And I said, well, it's up to you. you know, that's what's on offer. And what was odd is, you know, for, for many years, I've met you know, countless bank CEOs who are pretty contemptuous of governments. And I had this experience in March in the States when I was being told by these you know, big heads of a lot of American banks, you politicians just get in the way. By this stage, well, you know, there's a reason to say only you can stop this. And the great thing about our system is unlike the Americans, you don't go and have to negotiate with Congress. You could say, okay, you know, I announced a massive package, not just of buying um, the, uh, you know, the shares of some of the banks, but also extending the special scheme we had for providing liquidity, for guarantees, and, and, and so on. So we could announce that at 7 o'clock in the morning. But, I mean, it, it, you make it sound terribly easy to get agreement, but was there not an all-night meeting in the Treasury? Oh, well, yeah, we're a meeting without me, um, because I told them what we were doing, and at 11 o'clock they were all apparently having discussions. There's a wonderful scene, I remember looking down my little Treasury's long, long corridors for miles of them, and uh, listening to the, the, a conversation between a quite senior member of a bank and a 30-something treasury official. And uh, I remember she's saying, but you simply don't understand it. You're bust. You don't know that. You know, it was, it was, it was that sort of, you know, it was, you know, it was just a, a very, very odd atmosphere. But I said to my office, um, you know, my office, that um, I tell them I'm going to bed at half past 11. Because if I stay here, they will keep coming back and asking for more of this and more of that, because that's what they do. Um, 
And also, I had to bear in mind that at 7 o'clock in the morning, I had to be wide awake. I had to be briefed about every single item of this so that when I did the Today programme and all the other programmes, you couldn't afford to make any mistake. It is so important, you know, when you look at some, some nonsense that's been happening over the last few years, uh, you know, where people don't seem to know what they're talking about. And a thing like this, one mistake, one slip-up, and you could wreck the whole thing. So I said, I'm going to my bed, because uh, I do quite like a night's sleep. Uh, and, you know, I, my private secretary phoned me half an hour later and said, oh, they've all gone. Um, so, but their officials stayed, because they had to stay, because they had a lot of documentation if you're, if you're buying a bag. And, uh, you know, it, it, they stayed on. But the key thing was to get rid of the decision makers early on when the decision is made. And, you know, you know because we, without us, they were stuffed, they didn't really have much option about that. But you know, I, what I was not going to do, and here again, appearance is important. If you appear looking haggard on the television at 7 in the morning, people, you know, discount it. Mother was alive, she used to watch things, and I said, What do you think? When I was on telly, and she said, um, uh, Who owned your shirt? <laughs> you know, it's, appearances do matter when you're trying to instill confidence. And, you know, so yeah, the meeting didn't, the meeting would have gone all night, on all night, because I know that's what bankers do. I remember in the earliest stage when I was a transport secretary, when those PFI things were negotiated, no one did anything during the week. It was always on Saturday night they started working, and they worked on Saturday night, Sunday, and Sunday night, and with fees to match. Um, when they could per- perfectly well done agree what was supposed to be agreeing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, during daylight hours. I mean, there are, we, I can see a, a poster there, Britain's £500 billion bailout special edition. So... At least you sold some extra copies of the Evening Standard. But these were eye-watering sums of money. I mean, uh, we've been the pandemic, and, and we're used to hundreds of billions now. But at the time, the special liquidity scheme, which the Bank of England, which you referred to, which kept the banks going, was 200 billion. The credit guarantee scheme, underpinning the, the continued lending by the banks, was 250 billion. And then there was 50 to 75 billion of capital on top of that. Did you pause to think, how on earth are we going to raise this money? And what risks are we as a government and we as a country running in doing this? And did taking over a bank, I mean, you'd already nationalized a bank with Northern Rock, should have made you the hero of the left, but didn't for some reason. Uh, but then you were going to nationalise effectively the biggest bank in Britain at the time, RBS. Did that give you pause for thought and, and make you concerned about whether you did the right thing? Yeah, I, well, I was never in any doubt that we weren't doing the right thing. Um, and, yeah, of, of course, you know, from the moment that Tom McKillop told me that the largest bank in the world, the one that I'd opened my first account with at age 17, uh, was in hours of collapse... Um, and what you know, it concentrates the mind that, uh, and you know, you need to go back to the Northern Rock. You know, you mentioned the queues and all the rest of it. That left a huge impression on Gordon and myself when we did not have the powers at that stage. And you know, probably, um, you know, we were probably balked at you know, sort of trying to nationalise it early on. We did not want to see a run like that. I mean, that, this is a, Northern Rock was a small provincial bank. 
Uh, you know, it had obviously had a big mortgage book and, and, and so on. But this RBS was a completely different kettle of fish. And, you know, as I say in my book, I was in no doubt that we could not allow this to happen again. And it certainly couldn't happen uh, to bringing... If, if you bring down the entire banking system... Now, some of you here will recall the panic we had in the early 2000s when the tanker drivers went on strike, when shops were stripped, or even at the start of the COVID thing. Remember the people emerging with enough lavatory rolls to see them right for several centuries, I'd have thought. Um, you know, pe people do panic. And, who, and, and if a government loses control of a situation, you are finished. So we were determined that we wouldn't do it, and we would do whatever it took to stop this happening. Now, it didn't come on this, you know, we, this has been building over several months. So, we'd, you know, I remember having a conversation with Nick McPherson, the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. And, you know, this is you know, probably in the summer, he said, you do know if we, need to, if we need to buy these banks, we'll just have to do it. And so, you know, I, it wasn't all fresh to me. But what was, you know, I, you know striking and still remains me was on that day when I'd taken this call, I was flying back to, to London to, to put together, you know, the, the final touches here. We could not afford to let it fail. This is not something to play around with. You know, if the banking system shuts down, it's not only bad in the next few days, but it's, so after that, if you fracture the financial system, the fallout, it takes you about five to seven years to recover from that. And, you know, if you want, I'll go into why I think things went wrong after 2010. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, there was, no, there was no, uh, nothing else we could do. We just had to do it. And actually, at that time, in fact, you know, it's still to a large extent. Britain's awareness is very good. We've not defaulted in the last three years. And the fact that I told you the American authorities were willing to carry RBS for half a day and not ask where the money was coming from, it gives you some indication that people do have confidence in, in, in what we're doing. And even now, you know, when clearly, you know, the government is very extended, um, you, know, I, you know, I just simply don't buy the argument that somehow the money's about to run out. It isn't. As long as you remember, the key thing is you've got to honour your debts when they become due. Uh, and, you know, for the sake of completeness, you also have to try and make sure the economy starts growing again. Um, but that's a whole bigger question because things have deteriorated for obvious reasons over the last few months. Good. Let's see if there are any questions from Phil. Would anybody like to ask <coughs> Alistair a question or have a comment? Um, did you ever consider an alternative method like the one which Joseph Stiglitz, or Price Michael Cummings, recommended for RBS, which was to put the UK retail bank and the commercial bank uh, to nationalise that part of it, but put the international bits and the investment banking bits into this uh, resolution regime? Yeah, it does beg a question is what's essential. Um, and trying to dismember a bank in the middle of a crisis is great if you're an academic. And it's, but if you're faced with the fact that you are going to be surrounded by fires and ruins in a number of hours, you don't do something. Um, uh, no, we didn't. Um, I think the other thing is that I've always had this problem with a good and bad bank. Um, you know, we did, Northern Rock was eventually split, and the bad bit was worth more than the good bit, actually, at the, at the end of the day, because think assets, you know, change in value and so on. I also, you know, the Americans tried this, you know, the TARP scheme was meant to be doing this, and it just didn't work. 
because the Americans simply gradually changed to what we've done, which basically you take a large equity state and you nationalize it, um, and, and then you deal with it. And then, our, as you know, RBS is not the same creature as it was, you know, 15 years ago. You know, it's largely a high street bank with, you know, the other bits added on, uh, rather than, you know, trying to be an American investment bank. Um, in, in the long run, I think it's a pity that British banks are now being pushed back that way. But the answer to your question is no. Um, and the other thing is, I just say for the sake of completeness, there were an awful lot of people uh, who subsequently said they, you know, they saw all this coming. Very few of them actually remember to tell anybody about it, though. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Ken. Thanks, Russell. Ken, Ken Barclay, formerly of, of RBS. Um, and I guess I'm sort of thinking back, perhaps it might have been Ian Fraser's book that I remember reading. But the question that was always in my mind was um, why 67% then 83% when I'm reminded of your comments about the Treasury officials saying, well, don't you realise you're bust? Why not 100%? What, what made you decide that there was a stump of equity available to uh, the residual shareholders? Um, we, basically, the residual was left there because um, we wanted to keep RBS listed uh, and uh, we, wanted, we, knew we wanted a return to the private sector. Um, it was not obvious on the uh, 8th of October 2008 that it would take another 12 years before you could actually do that, although I guess it was going to take some time. But, you know, you know we were very new labourer in those days. We did not want to own a bank particularly because it's nothing but trouble if you, you, know, if you do that. Um, uh, and, you know, as you know, happily, you know, in relation to HBOS, for example, uh, Lloyds wanted to buy the thing. And I was always surprised they carried on with it, but they did. But we did not want to be owning banks because uh, it brings all sorts of difficulties. And that's, that's, you know, that's the reason that we left it. Um, you know, but, you know, I say all these decisions were ones that had to be made between lunchtime and uh, midnight, because there's an amazing amount of documentation and things, as you will know, being a formal banker, that lawyers have to sign off before you can actually announce it. And that my absolute drop-dead time was 7 o'clock the next morning when we had to explain why we were spending £500 billion on, um, on our banking system. So that's, that's the reason for it. More questions? Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm James Harris from, from Troy. Um, of course, uh, there's about 100 different ways of asking the same question, and you say that you absolutely had to act because the whole thing was collapsing, it would have been a disaster. But the problem was actually that the thing was so levered in the first place, and it should never have got there. The thing I'm always amazed by is that you know, no bank would ever really lend to a company that was financed like a bank. And yet, we continue to allow the banking system to be very levered, far too levered then, but still banks are very levered. It seems to me that inevitably, therefore, there will be continuous boom and bust in the banking system. This is not a new thing. So why do you think we, as, as a government, as society and as countries, allow the bank... Why is it special? Why is it allowed to be so levered? Well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's inappropriate for this evening because in terms of the stakes, the way in which banks were regulated, not just here but other parts of the world, was you know, in, clearly uh, woefully uh, insufficient. RBS, when it went finally failed, had very little capital. So did HBOS. 
Um, and you know, the RBS you know had gone into the market for um, derivative products, big style. You know, just a couple of years before it went. And the problem was that the regulators were not um, uh, you know rigorous enough. And not ensuring you know risk control and the rest of it, but making sure there was enough capital. It's different today because banks are carrying an awful lot more capital, uh, and the regime in, in the UK is you know there's the ring fencing and all that, which is I know is currently under review. Um, but I, and you know yes, the regulators failed in that respect, but so too did the government, us, uh, in that when uh, you know the um, uh, you know the, the turn of the century, as it were, when we set up the new regulatory system. Um, you know, it was not tight enough, and we have to accept the blame for that. Um, but although, you know, I would still argue that people who are directors of that bank have a fair share of blame to be thinking about as well, and that, you know, uh, you know they, they must, well, you'd like to think they knew what they were doing, but um, that wasn't always apparent, uh, especially when, you know, we, we got, finally got hold of the thing. But you're right that that is a problem. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a general problem that, you know, if banks appear to be doing well, and when I came back to the Treasury in 2007, you know, the first few days you come into the ministry, you go through everything. And incidentally, the financial stability was not on the agenda at all. But I noticed something like, you know, 25% of our revenues are coming from the, the banking sector. And I said, that's a lot. Um, because if that, something happened to that, you know, that's a large chunk. Um, so, you know, uh, there was a mistake, a series of mistakes made there. Um, I think it is a lot tighter than it is now. Um, although there's, you know, there's still a lot of still a number of organisations which are not regulated, not banks that are not regulated, who do have quite a lot of money, you know, um, you know in the system, if you were. Uh, but you know, if you ask me today, what what are the what are the, the major threats? I would say a cyber attack actually would worry me more than anything else at the moment. More questions? Anyway, yes. yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, Jonathan Calloway, um, former denizen of the city. Um, my question really is about governance and the collapse at the time and all the events that you've been describing was clearly showed up massive sh deficits in the way that governance was working at board level in, in those major banks, not just the two that we've been talking about, but others as well. Um, do you think that, I mean, there have been some improvements, but is it really that different today, in your view, uh, to, to you know, the situation that we had back then? There seem, still seems to be a lot of um, uh, groupthink in, uh, at board level. And, I, and I'm wondering whether uh, you know, we've got some of the recipe there still for um, a renewed disaster, not on the financial level, but on the governance level. You know, Britain's banks and tell you, you know, whether or not they're well governed or not. Um, you know, all I can say is I think it's a damn sight better than it was. Um, because one of the things they have to do and are required to do, do is to understand what the, what's at risk and how you know and, and, and what the backup systems are or something uh, were to fail. Uh, but you know, there's been a lot written um, right about um, um, uh, H. Bots, um, Ian and Ian Martin have written, you know, extensively about the governance of RBS and some of its apparent failings. And, you know, I think those, those testaments are pretty eloquent to what was going on. Uh, but, but you're right. 
I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure you're getting at it. if there's a, a force from outside that could come in and judge each board and say, well, are you, are, are you well governed? The regulators ought to be doing that. You know, they've got, and they've got the power to do that. If they don't like you know, what's going on, um, then you know, that's what they're there to do. And they should be doing it. Governments in themselves can't do it. And so, so are the shareholders, actually. Shareholders have a responsibility to uh, yeah, ensure good government. But, and, but it, what's important is to get shareholders who are active. If you hold shareholders in the bank, that you actually do it. But I mean, really, I, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced this has to be, you know, at regulatory level, you know, the, at, the, at the first line. And the government is in no position uh, to talk about governance, particularly the present government. We've been some difficulty to give anyone a lecture on how to be well run. I would have thought. I mean, in the case of HBOS and the Parliamentary uh, Commission on Banking Standards interviewed the chairman of HBOS, Lord Stevenson, um, who said, um, we were rather good at governance. <laughs> and Lord Turnbull, who chaired that session, said, well, if you were so good at it, how did you get it so hopelessly wrong? And clearly, they had ticked all the boxes and they thought that was enough but they didn't really understand what the business was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Ray, can I ask a question? You can ask a question, yes. Yeah. Your library. <laughs> it's really about the capital structure of banks. Ray's written about the city of Glasgow Bank with unlimited liability, and I don't think we can go back to that. But we've had talks at this library before uh, from John Turner about banking in his book, Banking in Crisis, and the structure of capital on banks, do you think there's room for much higher liability, double liability, triple liability on some form of equity capital in banks so that the shareholders have a much higher incentive to really do some of the regulatory work which has been foisted upon the government but should be done by the shareholders? Is there some way we can change the capital structure of a bank to more deeply involve the shareholders in, in helping make sure that we make the right decisions as, a, as an executive? Well, I mean, of course, there's a, there's a number of things you can do uh, to... to Try and increase shareholder risk if you like, um, but you know, I just it it would appear in a lot of cases because shareholdings are fairly widely spread. But there are very few who are activists, and the ones that are activists are not always you know coming along for the best interests of um, every every shareholder rather than you know, what they particularly want. And I don't have a particular you know sort of scheme or recipe that we, we could look at. But if you think of any organisation, it, it's it's owners are, if you like, one of the first lines of defence. Its regulators are there to make sure that it's being run properly. Um, uh, but how exactly you could put something in place that makes shareholders you know, anxious to do that, I don't know. Because a lot of shareholding is so um, you know, dissipated that it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. They very rarely act as a body. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's you know there have been examples, you know, and non-banking examples, you know, where shareholders can actually influence things um, uh, if they make enough noise about it. But um, I, I mean, I, I haven't got in mind a formula uh, that you would put in, put in place that would sort of guarantee that. More questions? Yes, Andy. Thanks, Russell. Um, you mentioned the regulators. Um, do the regulators pay enough to have people with the skill set to analyse the things that need to be analysed? You know, you, you talked about governance at director level, but I wonder if the board papers they saw gave them any chance at all 
of understanding what was happening off balance sheet and all the things that go with it. That's kind of rigorous, detailed analysis of derivative contracts and the things that interact with each other. And it is hard to see, you know, on some of the salaries paid that you're going to get the people able to do the work you need to do to actually uncover that. Does, does the government need to give a bigger budget to the regulator to, to up the skill set? I understand the chance of that. Um, the, the general <coughs> question is, it is, it is a problem. I think it is a problem. <coughs> but you're never going to be able to pay enough. And banks pay very, very well, you know. <coughs> Sorry about this. Any banks pay very, very well, as you know, and they're never going to be able to pay more than a public body, um, uh, even if you ramped up the cost of regulation, which is what they would do. Um, the civil service, which is roughly, you know, what governments their pay, their, their pay is never going to compete with that. What you're hoping to attract is bright people who um, ought to be rewarded, you know, for, 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 say, a bank recruiting people later on. You've worked for the PRA. You've got a lot of experience there, you know, that might actually help us. So I'm afraid you do have to rely on the professional um, commitment of people, which there is a lot. You know, I, you know, you hear a lot of rubbish these days about, you know, the, the British Civil Service. In my experience of 13 years in the Cabinet and um, five or six different departments, you know, yes, you're getting the exception, but they're actually very committed people who are very hard for a fraction of what they would get paid if they went to, you know, not just banking but elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, it's all hard to find far as I'm the public good. We do need to pay them well, but there's a limit to how much you're ever going to be able to pay them. It's a matter of practicalities. Uh, you know, you have not just in this, but in teachers, you know, the health service and so on. Um, but you're never going to be able to compete with a bank that is paying, you know, far more than the public sector can ever pay. Hi, um, I'm Laura from Cyrenians, and we provide a lot of services to people experiencing social exclusion. We also run social businesses. I was interested in what you were describing about the devastating social impact that allowing the banks to fail would have had in terms of disrupting the lives of lots of normal people and their ability to feed their children, etc., and the very size of some of these institutions being bigger than some states. And I was wondering what you thought about banks' social purpose or social role and the role of economic growth in terms of that social impact, or are the two always separate? Does the government run society and the banks run the economy? Governments <laughs> don't run society as such. But if you're asking me, how do you make sure that people have money in their pockets to make ends meet, to provide for their families and all the rest of it. That's primarily the duty of government. And you do that through fiscal policy. Um, and, you know, you, you know if, if you want to, you need to spend more public money, you know, helping people, that's how you do it. You're never going to do de deal with that problem in asking banks to do a wee bit, you know, socially or uh, so on. And this is the debate just now. You know, the, the, the debate of what the Chancellor could have done when he made his statement a few weeks ago. He did have money, you know, for his children to hold it back. But you've got people, particularly people who are in universal credit, for example, who've lost an awful lot of money, people who are going to be paying more for their electricity, for just about every bill uh, that there is to pay. It is, it is really the job of a government to decide 
you know, whether or not it's prepared to devote the sufficient resources to, you know, to prevent that problem or to at least alleviate it. It is never going to be sorted out by, you know, companies uh, doing stunts, which, however commendable, um, it can only, you know, it can do bits and pieces, but it cannot be a substitute for, uh, if we want to live in a fair society, it does mean that some people pay a wee bit more uh, so that we can help people who, you know, frankly, at the moment, are suffering quite a lot. And you asked about growth. It's an important point. I don't know if you saw the IMF forecast for growth, not just for us, but the global estimates for the next few years, they are dire. Our economy is going to be growing, they say, at just over you know, 1%. And it's not far off what Rishi Sunak was saying in his spring statement. It's bouncing back just now, and the figures you know, slightly misleading to that extent. But low growth means less people in work, it means less money to spend on public services upon which a lot of the people you're talking about depend. And this is going to be very, very difficult for us. Uh, and you know, this is a political decision. It's, there's no mechanistic way of dealing with this. It is a political decision as a matter of political choices. And you know, I think you know, even, you know, it would make a massive mistake if we go back to what happened in 2010, where the government chose what is now called austerity which meant that a whole generation of people were squeezed quite tight. They're now being squeezed again. Their children are being squeezed. And you know, if, if you want to know why did Mrs. Le Pen do so well in France yesterday, why did Trump get elected? Why did people vote for Brexit? It is, a lot of it is to do with the, a lot of people in this country feel left out and that no one really cares about them. Uh, and so, you know, I'm sorry to uh, you rediscover my political uh, <laughs> <coughs> enthusiasm. But you know, to, this is a, it, it's a political decision, and it's never going to be resolved by, frankly, charity. More questions? Anyway. Yep, right, right at the back, Russell, you're going to have to run this one. Hi, um, I just have a question. I think there's a lot of mystery with the banking and investment, especially for people who aren't necessarily in the profession. Um, do you think that more transparency on how banks and investment works for the general public would help them have banks or keep the banks more accountable? Yeah, well, I'm all in favour of transparency and understanding how banks work. You know, I'm not being facetious about this. I mean it. It would be nice if some of the people running the banks 12 years ago understood how the banking system <laughs> operated, uh, because they patently didn't. Uh, but you know, we've come a long way from the original bank, where people put money in uh, to save it, and the bank used that money to lend somebody else to buy a house or to do something. Uh, you know, got his interest on that. It's, yes, you're dead right. It's become you know, very um, much more developed to then. But then, you know, you then go and get into, you know, investment banking with companies and so on. I would, you know, I'd, I'd be very happy, um, you know, I'd like to see more explanation of that, particularly, you know, there's been a lot of talk about financial education in schools and so on. But I think the more people understand it, 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 it banking should not be a mystery least of all to the people who run it. Um, you know, it, 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 it should be open. Um, though having said that, uh, certainly um, the experience, experience I've had when different um, uh, education and so on, the interest among some of your peer group was not quite what you might hope. Um, I can understand that. You know, lots of things we're doing in life, uh, you know, in your at school and... <laughs> 
understanding what a subprime mortgage is uh, <laughs> might be, you know, not terribly exciting. Expect, although I do expect the average teenager would know that, that if you look at subprime mortgages, the clue is in the name. <laughs> if something is subprime, it doesn't sound awfully good. Anyway, I agree with you. I, as Mary Duff from Juniper, you talked earlier about some of the mistakes and things that might have been different. Um, from, from your personal point of view, you personally, what is, it, what is the thing that you would have done differently looking back at this situation? Well, certainly in, as far as financial crisis is concerned, if we had the appropriate legislation available to us, which we acquired you know, some months afterwards, we could have resolved Northern Rock over a weekend. We would simply take it over, um, either uh, sell it to another bank or, you know, put in different management, and you wouldn't have had the, you know, the pictures of the endless queues going round and round. But also, if we had introduced the special, what's called the special liquidity scheme, where the government, the Bank of England provides money for banks to be able to function on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, then we could have resolved that. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's on a practical level. Good things we've done better. Uh, yeah, there is, of course, the, you know, the wider question if you step back from all that, and that is um, if we've been able to do something more, which the gentleman over there asked about, making sure that banks were more you know, effectively regulated so the problem didn't arise in the first place. The only thing I'd say in, in that is every, every, every country in the world has that problem, um, and banking is so interconnected. You know, when, when the subprime market failed in Florida, it hit Northern Rock several thousand miles uh, away. So it, it's, it's, it's banks you know, do re rely quite heavily on international regulation as well as their own one. But yeah, in terms of that, of course, that sh could have been done better, and it wasn't. More questions? Anybody? Yeah, Mike. This, uh, this place is all about learning from mistakes, and uh, as a gross generalization, I wonder whether the mistakes are remembered for longer uh, if the penalties are uh, more severe. And I wonder if, as shareholders were not wiped out and uh, directors were not bankrupted or indeed uh, jailed, um, whether the lessons of this episode are, how do you feel the penalties of, for, for those that were involved, are, are, have, have they been sufficient for people to be worried or scared about replicating what happened? Yeah, I've been asked this a lot um, over the last um, 12 years. So the first thing is, um, you know, in terms of wrongdoing, uh, you, you, firstly, the principle and not just the UK, but in other jurisdictions, you can't make uh, you know, the law retrospective in terms of imposing penalties. And it, can, it must never be up to the government to decide who gets prosecuted or not. That's got to be a matter for you know, the independent um, prosecution. Uh, and you know, you're absolutely right. Um, I think there's only been a couple of people who have ever been you know, prosecuted, and even when there's been subsequent trials about other things, the success rate has been pretty, pretty low. I mean, I actually think regulatory sanction um, is a better way of trying to deal with this 
And I know, you know there's one individual on HBOS who was um, you know, sanctioned by the regulators, um, but others weren't. But I, I think the regulatory system has been toughened up since then. So if this happens again, you would hope that they, they would deal with that. Uh, I think in terms of memory, I thought you were going to ask something else which is important. What worries me uh, is that when you lose the institutional memory, in other words, when people are no longer employed by an institution who remember actually what happened, then you worry. Because a new generation is going to come along and say, I could do that. That's easy to do. Um, that, that, I think, it's, and it's not just in the financial service industry. In most institutions, you, you need to think, can you pass this on? I think the other thing is to make sure you have the for the people who are presently there to get the right culture in the building, in the office, about what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, it may be an old-fashioned thing, uh, but you need to drum it into people. And, you know, it's not from outsiders. You know, obviously, regulators can do it. But banks themselves, if somebody does something wrong, it should be dealt with. And banks can actually impose quite a big penalty on the people they work for because, you know, the way in which a lot of them are paid. But doing the right thing actually is quite important. And, uh, but, you know, that institutional memory thing is very, very important. And you know, I will leave you this and I could shut up. When um, I uh, went back to the Treasury in 2007, the Permanent Secretary said to me, um, you know, there's only three people here um, who have ever been through a recession. Anyway, I soon put that right for them. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's, an important, there's an important point here, that you do need people in a bank, in government, who know what to do and even better, can spot problems emerging and then do something about it. I know, it's, you know you're never going to get a perfect world, but that's, that's my thought on the point that you're making. Very good. Well, thank you, Alistair. You've, you've summed up, actually, what the Library of Mistakes is all about. Institutional memory, learning from the events of the past. Um, so can I, on behalf of everybody here, thank you, Alistair Darling, for coming to speak to us and, and for opening this. Um, fabulous new building. Um, can I, uh, on behalf of us all, again, thank Russell and the Library of Mistakes for hosting this, and, and thank you all for coming, and perhaps we could express our gratitude in the usual way. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and to explore the new Library of Mistakes in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our books and keep up to date on what we're up to, do follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice.